0: Well, this morning, um, we are working our way through the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. And uh, we've been working on this for just a few weeks, and today we are going to look at a, a pretty tricky passage. So you came to church on a, a fun day to talk about some heavy stuff today, but it's, um, it's, it's good. It's great that we get to study it and look at it. And today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to um, look at the end of chapter two, verses eighteen to twenty-five. So, if you want to go ahead and turn there, and um, as we jump into this, we're going to we're going to talk about some some um, like I said, some difficult topics. I guess um, it's not all that difficult biblically, but it's difficult because of the cultural. Situation that we live in right now. And um, so it's going to be a fun one to kind of look at together. But anytime that we approach something like that, I definitely want to spend some time just praying before we jump into that, just to settle our hearts and minds that we'd have uh, the focus that we need to have. So if you will, please pray with me. Lord, I just thank you, God, for this opportunity to be together here this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us a, a place to be and that you've given us some other like-minded people that want to gather together and know about you. And, and although we all come from different backgrounds and we have different opinions and we have different viewpoints and different worldviews, we do share the fact that we, we want to know you and we want to know what it is that you have to say. And so, Lord, this morning, I just ask that you'd allow us to hear from you. I don't want people to hear my opinion of this. Um, what I want to do is I want to join with my brothers and sisters in Christ here and just come and listen to whatever it is that you might speak to us. So Lord, I just pray that you would open up our hearts to what you want to teach us and, and what we can learn from you through your word. And I pray, God, that if there are places in our own lives, and our own opinions that don't line up with you and, and what you have for us, God, that we'd be willing to change, that we'd be willing to uh, shift those, those views so that they would be more in line with you because you desire us to be able to know you and to walk with you. And so as we look at these things today, Lord, I pray that you would just speak deep things into our lives. I pray that you'd bring encouragement. I pray that you would bring joy and peace, Lord, for those that, that might not be with us here today because of health reasons and illness and, and other difficulties happening, Lord, I just pray that you would be near to them, that you'd bless them. And, and even for those that are here, that have made it here, Lord, I pray that you just calm our hearts and minds and you just do uh, incredible things as you minister to us. We thank you for this opportunity, and it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we've been going through the first chapter of Genesis, we've looked at the creation story. And from the very beginning of Genesis, what I told you was, Genesis is a book of beginnings. It tells us a lot about different Beginnings. It tells us about the beginnings of creation. And we've gone through those, those six days of creation last week. We look at even the, the seventh day of rest that followed those six days of creation. It talks about the beginnings of humanity, which is what we, we really focused on last week. It will also talk about the beginnings of sin, which is what we're going to get to next week. But also, one of the biggest things that people sometimes miss in Genesis is it also describes the beginnings of salvation. It starts unfolding God's plan for salvation for humanity. And so it goes through these really big things of life as you walk through Genesis. Last week we saw, after wrapping up the creation account, we also saw that God created man and woman. That, that man and woman were created in God's image and they were placed in this garden, the Garden of Eden. And they were given the responsibility to work and tend creation. And at this point, what it tells us there in the text is that it was very good. So creation has happened. Man and woman have been made. They're in this garden. Things are going good. But for those of you who know this story, you realize that, uh uh-oh, it's about to take a dramatic turn, right? Everything's very good right now. Everything's moving perfectly. Everything is smooth. But pretty soon, things are going to get a little bit tricky, but what happens here, and as we've looked at this, um, we believe Moses was the author of the book of Genesis. That's what scripture tells us. Um, before we get into that doom and gloom of sin entering into the world, Moses takes a little pause here and he gives us a little more information about what was happening. All right, And, and talks a little bit about the, the interaction with, with Adam and Eve, as, as we'll see in here. All right, and there's a few more details to help flesh out the story, which really helps us understand all that is taking place. And specifically today, we're going to look at this first couple and God's design to make them the perfect pair. Okay, now let's start by reading verses 18 to 20. All right, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. Here's what it says It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. So remember, Moses backs up a little bit here. He's already told us that he made us in God's image, male and female, he created them. But then he's like, oh yeah, let me tell you about this part. And he backs up a little. He says, it's good that the man would not be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So here's what we see Adam has been created, he's been given this task of caring for creation, uh, and, and he's at this spot where he is alone. Now, this is the very first thing in the Bible that God calls not good. Up to this point, when we go through every single day of creation, you know, he, he, he separates light from dark, and he calls forth the light. And at the end of the day, do you remember that? He says, and it was good. And it goes that way every through each day of creation. But it's not until here to this point that he says, he pauses and he says, it's not good that Adam would be alone. The very first thing that God says is not good. That's the problem. And the solution is a really, it takes a a very interesting turn. The way God creates a solution for this, it seems like Moses got off track. He says, okay, God says it's not good that you're alone. And now let's talk about Adam naming animals. All right? But what we're going to see here is it's actually connected. All right? It's interesting because Adam's first order of business in his new role, his new job of being the caretaker of earth, is that he is supposed to begin naming, as he says here, naming um, each of these beasts of the field and the birds of the air, all the creatures of the earth. And notice that's exactly the same thing that God had done previously in the, the days of creation. Right? If you go back into chapter one and you read through it, it, it'll say, and God called it day. And so it would be called day. And God called it night, and it would be night. God called it the land, the earth, and it was named the earth. So God has already done this process of naming. He's done this process of creation. And now he says, you are gonna take over and care for this earth, and your role is gonna be like my role. You're now even gonna name the creatures that I've created, all right? And so Adam begins this job of naming the animal kingdom. In fact, we see there that God even brings the animals to him. Now, notice this. We aren't told how long this process took. Now, I don't know about you, you know, if you're picturing Adam with a, a notebook and a coffee, you know, sitting in a chair and, and there's this parade of animals coming through, and God says, What about this one, Adam? What about this one? What about this? I don't think that was probably what was going on. There's probably some time in here where Adam is wanting to name things by observing them and trying to understand them, get an an idea of their nature, how they function, what they do. You know, why would you you look at a giraffe with its big old neck eating leaves from a tree and be like, giraffe? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know what about that happened, but there's this process that takes place, but we don't know how long it actually was. But in it... What God was doing was he, was he was helping Adam begin to function and to understand his place in the world as well as the rest of the world. And, we're, and, and God is shaping Adam's understanding of the animal kingdom. He was teaching Adam a course on the birds and the bees, probably, showing him the diversity of, of wildlife, of the livestock, of the birds and the beasts, and the difference of each animal and their mate. Now, of course, God knew when he gave Adam this task, he knew at the end of this, you're not gonna find a mate that is suitable for you with all the animal kingdom. He knows that. He hasn't told Adam that yet, but he's like, yeah, look around. See how they all have their their fit, their place here? You're not gonna find anything there. But it was a sense of discovery for Adam to realize that there was no helper for him. And the interesting thing is this. If you had done that, if you had been in Adam's shoes, if you had gone through this whole process, and at the end, what you recognize is, oh, every animal has a mate. There's a way that this works, but not me. What would you be discovering? You'd be discovering loneliness. You'd be like, wait a minute. All the rest of the kingdom functions this way, but what about me? I'm alone. It's a discovery of loneliness. And here's the thing. I think this points to the importance that God places on community, on relationship. Now, could Adam have survived alone? Sure, he could have. But would he have thrived alone? Remember what God said about it? Hmm, it's not good. This isn't ideal. I don't think he would have. It doesn't seem like it. In fact, God allowed Adam, I believe, to experience the loneliness in order for him to truly appreciate what was going to happen next. Now, you might be like me, and you overthink everything. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, that seems a little bit manipulative by God. Don't you think? It's like, come on, you like do all this just to show him what he doesn't have? Or maybe a little unkind. It's like poor Adam having to feel lonely right when you're in the Garden of Eden and everything's supposed to be great. But God in his wisdom knew what was best. That's what I come back on and rest on. And what we do know about scripture later in scripture is we find out that God definitely cares about the lonely. And in fact, there's even scripture that talks about he goes out of his way to help the lonely. So it's not that God's like, ah ha ah, ah, ha! I'm going to get you, make you lonely, and you're going to deal with it. It's it's not that way. Psalm sixty-eight five to six says this in the New American Standard version. It says, "A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in His holy habitation." And it goes on in verse six and says, "God makes a home for the lonely. God cares about those who are lonely." And I will say this, and and I was actually about to cut this because I've got a lot to cover today and I'm gonna to try to squeeze it into the amount of time that we have. I thought about just cutting this whole section out but as I was praying about it, I was like, no, I think this is important for us to hear. And maybe there's some of you today that feel like I'm lonely and, and it doesn't mean that there's not people around you. It doesn't mean that you don't have a big family or lots of social life and all of that. You can be very lonely and surrounded by people. But I do want you to hear this and I want you to see this. God cares for the lonely. And God wants to meet you wherever you're at, at any time. And he wants to comfort you. And he wants to draw close to you. And sometimes, like with what Adam was experiencing here and feeling this loneliness, um, we want to blame God for the struggles that happen in life. Life's hard. And there's a lot of things that happen in life that are difficult. Many things in life don't make sense. Life is not fair. I tell that to my kids on a regular basis. Hey, life's not fair, (laughs) because it's not. And sometimes it seems chaotic and random, and it's especially in those places that we have to decide what it is that we actually believe about God. And what the Bible teaches us about God, and that we're gonna learn through Genesis, is number one, he's good. He's absolutely good. He's just. He's righteous. God is all-powerful. He's wise and he's loving. That's who God is. He knows the beginning from the end and his heart is to bless us and to draw us into relationship with him. Not only that, that's what the Bible tells us, but then even when we talk to Christians that have gone before us, what Christians that have lived lives following Lord always tell us is he's faithful. Doesn't always feel like it. Sometimes it feels like you're alone or you're out here this, sitting on this rock in the cosmic universe wondering who cares. But what the Bible tells us and what, what the testimony of Christians tell us is that no, God actually is with you and he cares. He cares about you. We're not always going to make sense of all the things that happen in this life. Tragedy, untimely deaths, divorce, disease, pandemics, droughts, disasters, but we're invited to put our faith in him. Um, One quick story before we get back into Genesis. You know, um, when you jump into the New Testament and you look at the life of Jesus, there's a story in the Gospels, two of the Gospels, about Jesus going to visit some of his closest friends, Martha and Mary. And the reason that he's going to make this particular visit to Martha and Mary is because their brother, who was a good friend of Jesus as well, Lazarus had died. And so it's a tragedy. He he comes there. he, He comes to meet with them. And Martha, one of the sisters, comes up, and she's just heartbroken. She's grieving. She's in a bad place. She's just lost her brother, who she was very close to, who she loved. And Jesus, as he enters into conversation with her, he begins to talk with her. And I think that a lot of the things that we get from that interchange that they have are things that are useful for us in our lives, Some of it would have been hard, I think, for for Martha to hear where she was at. Her her heart was broken. You can't really talk about a lot of those things. But in in John chapter 11, Jesus says to her, he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, and you can fill in the blanks there with all kinds of things, though the divorce happens, though the disease takes over, though that loss happens in life. Even though those things happen, if they believe in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He gives hope beyond the hard places of our lives. Later in John, in John sixteen thirty three, Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And guys, that's an important thing to know. Sometimes people feel like, oh, well, if I come to Jesus, I follow Jesus, I give my life to him, and I order my life in that way, then everything's going to go smooth. Everything's going to be great. It's all going to be perfect. That's not true. And Jesus never said that would be true. What he said is, one day, beyond this life, Things are gonna be worked out. But in this life, there's some really bad stuff that happens and it's going to happen. But put your faith and trust in me and I'm gonna carry you through even the darkest, heaviest places. So back to Genesis now, we look at verse 21. So Adam is now feeling lonely. He's recognized that there's no one for him and look what happens. In verse 21, it says this. So the Lord God Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here's what we find in Genesis. Adam discovers his loneliness and God makes the word here is a helper fit for him. Now, it's a perfect match, okay? Now, we've got to talk about this because right off the bat, This is one of the places of scripture that has been really twisted and really lost over the centuries of people trying to interpret things. And the first word that might catch you here is the word helper. And when we think of helper, sometimes we think of, uh, uh, for instance, when I was in college, I worked all sorts of weird jobs. Sometimes I like to tell you guys about the weird jobs I've had because I've had a lot of weird jobs. Um, some of the not-so-weird jobs I had in college during the summers, I'd go home, or go home to where my parents were living and, and work as a helper with construction crews, remodeling crews. And a helper in a remodeling crew, you know what they do? All the stuff nobody else wants to do. <laughs> That's why they had the helper. They're paid the bottom of the bottom, as low as you can possibly pay them, and, you can make, and they do all the stuff you don't want to do. The skilled people do the skilled stuff. You do the stuff that the helper does. And that's sometimes how we think about helper. Oh, so I see what's going on here. This is this deal where Adam's got his little helper. Not so, guys. That's not what is said here. In fact, I will have you know that the same word helper is the name used to describe God himself as the helper of Israel, All right? And it's not just once in Scripture that we see God referred to as a helper. It's multiple times that God is described as the helper. All right? And that's a very different view than the helper, right? And it it shows up in Exodus and Deuteronomy and 1 Samuel. And it's talking about this one that can provide true help in time of need. All right? So, right off the bat, we understand that helper is not helper it's not a subservient role all right you got that well next the rest of that phrase is a helper that's fit for him and that that phrase fit for can also be translated corresponding to what it's describing is a perfect match all right a perfect match male and female he created them in the image of god so we've talked about that, and, we, and we've seen that. Um, the best way that I can describe this, I was thinking about, well, how can I illustrate this? Well, I think about guitars. I like, about, I like guitars. All right, and on guitars... You could see this if you were close to this guitar, but we won't try to do that. On guitars, one of the ways that they, they deal with um, making guitars, luthiers, those are the people that build guitars, all right, a luthier will take a piece of wood, and usually it's this select good wood, and there's all these different types of woods that you make guitars out of, rosewoods and koa and cocobolo and all sorts of other words, that you, wood you've never heard of. Um, but they take this chunk of wood and they process the wood, they cut it just to be just right for half of the guitar. All right? right down the middle, half of it. And then they take this piece of wood that's cut just right for half of a guitar, and then they stand the block up on a saw, and they run the saw right down the middle of this piece of wood. And then they open up the wood. All right? And when you do that, in that process, as you open this up, it's called book-matching wood. All right? And it's matched like a book because you're opening it up. All right. And inside what you find is all of the beautiful grains and the figure that would be in that wood would be now cut right down the middle. And so it's balanced on both sides. So you see these beautiful uh, streaks of the wood going out this way and that way. Then they take the two blocks of wood and they glue them together. And then from that point, now they then shape the guitar and they cut it out. And those two pieces of wood, bookmatched together, make the perfect match, the perfect fit. Do you see that? Do you understand that? That's what's being described here with this phrase that man and woman were made to be fit together with this perfect match. They were fit for one another. All right? She would supply what was lacking in him and he would supply what was lacking in her. And God does it here with the first recorded surgery. He puts Adam under, puts him to sleep. It's the first bit of anesthesia there. Who knows how he did it? And he takes a rib and then patches him up and then supernaturally forms Eve. So when you get to heaven, you see some guy running around with his shirt off and a big scar over here. Good chance it's Adam, all right? And and so he does this. And Adam responds with the very first love poem. Notice it. Read it again with me in verse 23. What does Adam say? He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the one for me. She's like me, yet different than me. She completes me. And this was God's good design. Remember, at this point, there's no sin there's no brokenness. There's no fallenness. A perfect match. Now, I told you uh, last week when we were going through um, chapter 1, verse 27, which says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And I told you there that we see in scripture that God created two distinct genders. Two genders. Before the fall, God equally created us all in his image, yet with differences. And the differences were very good. I I like what um, an an author named Andrew Walker says about this. Here's a quote for you. He says, gender and sexuality are not evolutionary quirks. Both find their origin in the creative will of God. Now, I realize as soon as I say the word gender, some of our defenses go up right now. That's that's the way it is. This is the world that we live in. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. No matter if you're like, oh, I've already thought through this. I've got an opinion on this. I know where I stand on this. Listen, let's just stay calm and see what is written here. First off, I want you to recognize God calls gender good. He says it's good. And understand that everything that God calls good, the devil will call evil. And you might be like, whoa, you already jumped straight to the devil? Yes, I'm gonna have to, and you're gonna see why in a minute, all right? Anything that God builds, the devil wants to destroy. Everything that God loves the devil hates everything God celebrates. The devil wants to sabotage. And to be clear, the devil is not the opposite and equal power to God. Right? We don't as Christians, we don't believe in yin and yang. It's not like here's God almighty and here's devil almighty and they're just fighting cosmically. That's not what the Bible describes at all. You've got God And then you've got the devil that's like a little snake nipping at the heels of everyone else, all right? Uh Uh-huh, that's what it is. And the devil's trying to poison whatever and whoever he can because his ultimate prize would be destroying that which is made in the image of God. And if he can deface, disfigure, or mangle humanity, he will. What Jesus tells us about the devil, he calls him the thief, and one of the ways that he describes the devil, he says in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In John 8.44, he's talking about the devil as well. He says, he, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now listen, there are many in our world today that want to, to erase gender. They want to just take it out of the equation. And I think there are a lot of, of reasons and motivations that people feel that way, and that people have come to these conclusions. There are you know, societal pressures, Antiquated gender norms in some cases, abuses, confusion, and perversion. All those things play a role. But I believe that the primary source of the attack on gender is because of the shift in beliefs of our culture. And let me, let me explain a little bit why that's happening. I think what's happening is we're seeing a spiritual battle that's being played out in physical reality among people who believe that there is no spiritual reality. So what's happening is there's this spiritual thing at work in the physical realm among all these people that say there is nothing spiritual. But what they don't realize is there are these pressures that are happening and there is things that are impacting their lives and they're oblivious to it. That's what's taking place. And I think that's why you have to talk, bring the devil up into this because I think the devil has a part to play in that. What Genesis teaches us is that God created, in his image, male and female, as the pattern and form of all humanity. And as our creator, he has the authority and the right to make us as he chooses. But if you believe that there is no design to humanity, and that there is no designer behind humanity and you also believe that reality can be reshaped and reformed continuously, then it's not a huge stretch to believe that you can create whatever reality you want. Truth becomes relative to whatever you believe, rather than something outside of you. And that's where we start seeing things like gender being called fluid. That gender becomes fluid. Fluid. It's no longer objective fact that exists outside of you. Now, here's another quote from that same author. I think this one is good, too. It says, What Christians believe about sexuality and gender is not an in-house argument for debate among Christians only. The Bible understands gender and sexuality as creational realities that determine whether a society will organize itself in subjection to God's authority or in rejection to God's authority. You see, a society that does not embrace creational realities will not survive. There is no agreed upon objective truth to hold it together. Morality, law, order, and civilization itself will crumble if there's no truth to build it on. If the devil, who Jesus called a liar and a deceiver, can convince humanity that there is no truth, then he can replace truth with lies and begin to destroy men and women who are made in the image of God by mangling their God-given identity. That's what's actually at the root of the movement to race gender. So here's the question. Okay, well, that's bad. That's scary. How, though, do we as Christians then interact with a culture that is in that mode right now? How do we handle it? Should we just stick our heads in the ground and hope that the fade passes, or the fad passes, I mean? Should we all pack up and move somewhere where this isn't happening? (laughs) No. Two things I want to give you to take home with you in your mind on this. Um, number one is clarity and number two is compassion. First off, we need to have confidence in the clarity of God's word. And secondly, we need to have compassion for those who want to erase it. This has not always been the capital C church's position on this. But I think that it is the right posture for us as Christians to have. Um, and... and we'll see if we can get there with it, right? So clarity, number one, what does it the Bible clearly tell us? God created man and woman in his image, and he created differences in the two genders. Now, here's what happens. If you reject either of those two statements, that we were made in his image and that we were made male and female, you have two, two, three three different ways that you can reject that. You can reject half of it, or you can reject all of it. If you reject the first statement that says God created us in his image, if you reject that and say there is no equality, um, then what you run into is you run into this misogynistic chauvinism, right? Because what they say is, well, there's no equality. Men are superior to women. And so that's how we're going to live. And that's how we're going to build life. What have you done? You've ignored one of the truths of scripture if you go down that path. You flip-flop that, and you say, no, actually, everyone is equal. There's no distinction between gender. It's all equality. What you run into in the far extreme of that would be an egalitarian feminism that says, no, there's no difference between men and women. We're all absolutely equal. But that takes you down a whole nother path. All right? If you decide, oh, I don't want to hear anything that the Bible has to say. There is no image of God, and we're not created differently. We're going to throw it all out That's where transgenderism and that argument begins to show up. Because there is no creator. There is no image. Male, that stuff's all in your head. It's it's an emotional thing. It's how I feel or what I sense today. Do you see what's happening there? The biblical viewpoint doesn't allow for any of those extremes. Instead, what we see, and this is why I'm saying it, it needs to be clear for us, what we see is that God created male and female in unique and wonderful ways. It is sin that distorts both our equality and our differences. And I do understand many people will not agree with us on those positions. But it's good that we have clarity. So that when people say, well, why do you think this? Because this is what I believe God has told us is reality. All right? But then the other thing about that is we also need to be people of compassion for those that disagree with us and people that do not see things the way that we see those things. Jesus came, we did a whole series on this a while back, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Seek and to save the lost. We, as his disciples, continue the same work that he began. We have been called to seek and save the lost. We don't have any power to save people, but we know the one who does. And those who want to erase The created order, or for those who are confused about their gender and struggling to understand their existence, lostness is a good description of where those people find themselves. Christians should be able to come with compassion and care and speak the truth with love. Guys, we are called to love the lost and care for those people. And instead, what you've seen in a lot of churches and among a lot of Christians is this attitude that is nothing like Jesus in, in loving and caring for people and walking people through the things they're struggling with. Instead, it's this superiority, and I hate you, and you're gross, and get away from me, and you're all just going to rot and go to hell. What? Where's Jesus in any of that? You call yourself a Christian, and you're going to try to bring that kind of sp- junk to the table? It's wrong. We should be people of compassion. Again, though, will we be attacked for our position, even coming that way? Yes, we will. But we're called to bring love and light to those who are lost. And then finally, the last, the last two verses that we look at here together, um, it, it's interesting here. Um, Moses, it's almost like a little side note that he adds in here. He breaks away from the narrative for a second. And let's read it again together. Verse 24, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The, the last thing that we see here in this section is that the, the, the male and the female, the man and the woman, were bound together. And what we, what we see here is just a little tiny glimpse of of God's design for marriage. It was God's design, his intention from the very beginning of creation, that one man would be married to one woman and that they would complement each other and be bound together for life. Now, we all know, I mean, sin hasn't even entered the world yet. We know that that doesn't always work out. We know that it's very difficult to pull that kind of stuff off, that those things get broken And they get mangled and twisted, and there's all kinds of sin, and there's all sorts of issues, and there's a lot happening, right? It's not addressing any of that right now. It's laying out big ideas. The big idea, the design behind it, the real plan of it was that you'd get married to one person, and you'd stay married to that person for all of your life. And from that relationship, they would then fulfill the responsibility that they were given to be fruitful and multiply by bearing children through the sexual relationship that was given to them for their marriage. And the husband-wife relationship was to become the highest priority, that's what it's referring to here, above their other human relationships, even above their relationship with their parents. Jesus himself pointed back to this verse right here, Verifying and validating it when asked about divorce. So when Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew 19, 3 to 9, he said this, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. What was Jesus talking about in here? Again, he's giving the big picture. He's giving the the created order, the created reality. He says, this is what it was supposed to be from the very beginning. Now, in the very beginning, were we supposed to sin? No. No. Not in any way. (laughs) But do we all sin? Yes. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. So because of that sin being involved in all parts of our lives, is it going to break things? Yes. Is marriage one of those things that gets broken a lot? Yes. All right? That's what is being described here. But notice that the, the ideal... The goal, the thing that we should be looking toward, is that it could actually stay together. Now, when we reject this, the creative intention of God, we're breaking relationship with him. And I've told you guys one of the simplest definitions of sin. Sin is anything that damages a relationship between us and God or us and other people. If you want to know if it's sin or not, whatever it is, just ask yourself, well, does it break my relationship at all with God? The answer is yes, it's sin. Does it break my relationship with other people? If I say this thing, if I do this thing, is it sin toward that person? Yes, all right? Now, God is calling us to try to leave our sins behind and and step out of that and move away from that. And notice that the pattern here for sexual morality was established before sin entered the world. And, and I think that it's important just to say this here, and I wish I had time to go into all of this part right now, but I don't. Our sexuality was part of the very good creation. That's another place that it's broken, that it's, the, the conversation of these things is, is broken in our world. And because it was so central to God's creation and intention for humanity, it's one of, if not the biggest area of spiritual struggle for humanity. That's why you see all of these conversations all through the scripture about that. And when we try to remove sex out of the marriage relationship and hand it over to every individual to do with as they choose, the whole system gets corrupted and breaks down. And that's one of the biggest things right now, the the biggest misunderstandings in our world today is that your sexuality is your own. And so whatever pleases you in your sexuality should make things just fine. And everybody else just needs to stay out of your business and let you do whatever it is that you feel like you need to do the way you want to do it. But that wasn't the plan. That was never set up that way. It was meant to be within this relationship. Very different viewpoint on it. As Genesis continues, we're going to see this clearly displayed over and over again. Sexual sin is a rejection of the authority of God in our lives and therefore rebellion against our maker. So what do we see as we kind of recap this? God made the perfect pair and his creation was very good. And to end on a positive note, because there's a lot of not positive in a message like this, know that God is at work restoring brokenness. Sometimes when we look at the brokenness of the world around us, or even the brokenness of ourselves, we get pretty discouraged. And we're like, how are we ever going to get out of this? How is this ever going to be fixed? Is it possible? God is at work restoring our brokenness. And I know that I focused a lot on our brokenness today, but know that we can still move towards God's good intentions. Our marriages, for those of you who are married here today, Our marriages can reflect God's intention for marriage. We won't do it perfectly because we aren't perfect people, right? We're broken people. In fact, here we had two perfect people, and that perfect marriage lasted for about five minutes, as we'll see next week, (laughs) all right? And we're not even perfect to start with, but we can move in that direction, we are all at different points in our journey, but as we see God's plan and devote ourselves to it and to him, we can watch as he transforms us and transforms our relationships into what he designed them to be. But it's really helpful to know what it's supposed to look like. Okay? And, and ultimately, what that does is that then, once God starts healing our marriages and our relationships, it allows us to be seen as we're supposed to to the world around us, which is light. When other people look at us, our brokenness, being made whole and growing and moving in the right direction, they can say, what is going on with you? (laughs) I'm trying to follow after God, and this is the result of it. And we want to be people that are always pointing back to him, aren't we? All right, well, we're out of time. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word. And God, I, I know that this is a hard conversation to have, and I'm so thankful, Lord, that you've given us direction on it. For, for many people, even Christians, we sometimes are afraid that we don't have the words that we need. We don't have the directions that we need. We don't know what you have for us. But God, we are thankful that you actually do speak to these things. You address every topic You don't give us all the details that we'd sometimes like to have, but Lord, we trust that you gave us what we need to know. And we ask, Lord, that you would constantly help us understand what it is that you speak to us. And so, Lord, especially today, as as we've been talking, just briefly talking a little bit about marriages, I want to bring before you the marriages that are represented in this church. And I know that there are marriages at all sorts of different levels. Some have been married a very long time, some a very short time, Some have been divorced and remarried many times. There are some that may be on the brink of divorce and struggle right now. We've got some marriages here where uh, one spouse is a believer and one is not. There's a lot of variety and there's a lot of difference among us. But God, I pray that for all of us, you'd give us a vision for what it is that you're calling us to do and to be. Even for those that are not married now and may be married in the future, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would guide each one of us in this. Such a critical component to who you made us to be. And I pray that we'd be able to see that and understand that. And so today, Lord, I pray that you'd bring healing, that you'd bring wholeness, that you'd bring direction on marriages. And that out of that, Lord, that you would be glorified in it and that we would be lifted up. And God, I also want to bring up this this topic before you Uh, in our culture, in our society surrounding gender. And so many of these questions that are happening right now, Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity and that you would give us compassion. I pray that we would be people that, that help make a positive impact in the conversation, that we would help guide people and point people back to your truth, back to the creational reality that you have established. And God, we also just wanna step in and pray for our society that wants to reject you or the idea of you, that wants to walk away from truth. And Lord, we just pray for them. God, I pray that you would illuminate hearts. I pray that you would silence the attack of the enemy and the lies that are being told. But instead, Lord, that you would bring clarity and truth into people's lives. And out of that, Lord, that every person, every person would come to know you and experience the abundant life, the whole life, the true life that you want to give every human being. And so God, I just pray that you would do that and you would help us as we try to do what you're calling us to do as being light and life to the world around us. And may we bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus in all things. Watch over us this week. Guide us, direct us. I pray that you bring us back safely um, here again next week. And may we do all things for your glory and your honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.